0: I was going to say, Steve, this is the episode where we find out how wrong we were, right?
1: (laughs) Probably. I don't know.
2: (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. Their upcoming course is JavaScript to Node, which covers some advanced JavaScript topics and real-time web development with Node.js. You can also get recordings of their previous courses like JavaScript the Good Parts, AngularJS, CSS3 in-depth, and responsive web design. Get it all at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgemo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgemo.com and check them out. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 104 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have A.J. O'Neill.
3: Yo, 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 coming at you live from the sweltering jungles of Virginia.
2: Jameson Dance. Hello. Merrick Christensen. Hey guys. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV and we have a special guest this week, Steve Klapnik. Hey everybody, I'm Steve so we brought you on this week because we kind of botched our JSON APIs discussion, <laughs> <laughs> or so some people told us. It was interesting, the reviews we got. Some people were like, no, they 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 got it. It was just there was a lot to talk about, and they kind of glossed over a lot. And other people were, no, 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 they totally blew it. So we thought we'd bring you on and maybe focus the discussion a little bit on hypermedia APIs. Totally. Do you want to kind of, well, first give us an introduction to who you are? I know who you are because I see you at the Ruby conferences, but maybe for the guests and the new people who don't know who you are.
4: Yeah, totally. I'm Steve. I'm a complicated individual. I guess the easiest intro is that I work at a company called Balanced Payments, and my job title is philosopher in residence. So complicated. Basically, what we do is we take in credit cards and charge them and give people the money when they you know, use credit card stuff online. And so my job is to be A bunch of things, but one of my roles is to be the, like, I joke, API dictator. So, like, every single change in behavior in the API has to be signed off by me before it goes out. And so I get to be resident HTTP nerd and standards nerd and, like, make all that stuff work out. So, yeah, but I go to quite a number of Ruby conferences, or have in the past. I'm starting to slow down a little bit because flying all over the place is exhausting. I'm currently writing three books one on Rails, one on Hypermedia stuff, and one on Rusts. I don't know. I could go on forever. Lots of stuff. So. Sounds, sounds um, like
1: you're underachieving, honestly.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. I feel lazy. I don't know. I have a different set of standard for productivity than most people, I guess. But anyway, so I co-authored the JSON API spec. So that's also why this would be relevant for this particular conversation. And also, we use JSON API in production
0: for work as well. So there's also that kind of stuff. So that's the spec at jsonapi.org, right? Yes. I wanted to plug your book for you because you you only half plugged it. It's Designing Hypermedia APIs, and you should go buy it. I guess it's fast for Steve to say that, so I'll say it for him. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about JSON API, like the spec specifically, and how it came about? Sure. So my perception was it's like the Ember data spec. Yeah, uh, so... And that's all I got from outside looking in.
4: This is a fun story, actually. So the story of JSON API actually is a story about Yehuda and I going from me being Yehuda fanboy to me being friends with Yehuda. So way back in the day, I was like, you know, I have my hero programmers, and one of those was Yehuda cats. And then from going to these Ruby conferences, we like met and talked about stuff. And I had been working on hypermedia concepts and building stuff with hypermedia for a while, and actually was in Utah at Mountain West RubyConf a couple years ago, Basically, Yehuda said, like, I don't believe in this hypermedia stuff. You should explain it to me. And we proceeded to have, like, a three-hour-long argument about whether or not hypermedia was a good idea. And at the end of it, he basically said, I will believe you when I see some code. I believe you more than I did before, but I'm not really sure what's done. And I was like, yes. And so that was this really humanizing moment where, like, I got into an argument with a programming hero and, like, won. (laughs) <laughs> and so now, you know, now we are friends. I no longer believe that anyone is superhuman, and we're all just programmers trying to do what we're doing, you know, et cetera. So programming celebrity is stupid. But so, uh, that argument turned into JSON API like two years down the line. So what were you gonna say?
0: I was just gonna say it's like in the Princess Bride when uh, the man in black defeats each of his enemies, and then they join his crew. Totally. I have not actually
4: seen that movie, so.
0: Oh. Oops. That's well, a shame, dude. That's,
1: no,
5: that's, I've that's heard good like. things
1: about it, but I've never seen it. So, at um, some point in time. Could you, could you illuminate me on what exactly hypermedia APIs are? How are they different from just regular RESTful services, et cetera? Yes. So, the lineage is REST doesn't mean what everybody thinks it
4: means. So, rather than trying to tell everyone they're wrong, we created a new term and said, cool, let's talk about this brand new thing that you have no preconceptions about. And so, hypermedia APIs, the simplest explanation is it's by the book REST. What that actually means is that, so you know, have you ever like tried to open a door and it's actually a door that you push, but it's got like a pull looking handle on it. So you try to pull it, you need to push it or the other way around, right?
1: Yeah. yeah and exactly. if you get it wrong, you
4: have to, a and it sucks. So William Gibson calls these things affordances. And this is a term that's used in like industrial design and some other design fields. And an affordance is like a property of a thing that demonstrates to you that you can take an action with it. So the reason why you push on certain door handles and pull on certain door handles is because they, like, imply to you that an action should be taken. So a hypermedia API is an API that doesn't just dump out raw data. It actually also includes affordances to let you know what you can do with that data in line with the response itself. So, like, if a regular REST service is just showing you, like, doors, this is showing you doors but with an open and closed, you know, link, that shows you whichever thing you can actually do with the door at the current time. So the door is already closed, it would return a open link. and then if you follow that link, it would return the door, but now it would be open, the state would be changed open and you know it would show you a closed link, as an open one or whatever. So that's sort of the general concept of, like, hypermedia. And hyper means above, and media is, like, media. So above media, meaning there's, like, links and relations between multiple bits of media is sort of the general idea. It's a generalization of hypertext from HTTP. So not just text has links, like, other things
5: do too. That makes a lot of sense.
4: Yeah, so JSON API is a is a couple things, but one of the things it is is a hypermedia format. So it includes links. You can tell people what stuff it is. You can do with your data. But so after this discussion about whether or not hypermedia was a good idea or not, we were talking about like so one of the problems that Yuda had back then was that Ember was just getting off the ground, and while Ember is like comes from Rails world in many ways, you don't want to restrict Ember to just being for Rails. And so he was trying to figure out like we should have like an Ember API format, and I was like, dude. There's this thing called media types, and that's, like, what they're designed for, is that you say, I'm going to produce something in this format, and that way you can write a consumer for the format, and it just works. And so he said, yeah, whatever, that sounds dumb. And then, like, a while later, it was like, oh, wait, actually, you were totally right. Check it out. I wrote this draft of a spec and, like, released the initial spec of JSON APIs. So what it does is JSON API is essentially a standardization of the initial format that Ember expected and produced so that other servers could be written to interpolate with Ember transparently, basically. And so that's sort of the lineage of it now. And it's grown as people have used it for other purposes and done other things, but that's sort of the initial thing was let's actually write down a standard of what Ember is going
1: to expect from a server. So can you talk a little bit about what kind of tooling, etc.? Like, why is it a good idea to standardize on something like hypermedia? So and why do you need a standard like this? Everybody's JavaScript. This is a JavaScript show, not a Ruby show, so I can't
4: assume that you all like believe in or even like Rails. Um, <laughs> but, so the Rails got so popular because conventions allowed people to be very productive because once you learn the convention, you can build things really quickly because you have the shared understanding of what's going on. So JSON API means that instead of having to relearn... So basically, it sucks that Twitter and Facebook and everybody else have totally different API formats. And so what happens is you can't carry any knowledge over from one API to another when you're actually implementing things because there's too much stuff that's custom. So the idea is that if everyone produced JSON API, we would have a shared understanding for how to tackle specific problems that are almost universal. So, for example, one of the things is like creating some sort of object, right? You probably want to build a resource of some kind. So that's every single API needs to deal with how do you create a resource And rather than making them bespoke, artisanal, hipster, handcrafted individual resources, we now have this, like, shared standard for how to create a resource. And so that way, you already know how it works across different APIs, which means that you can write one set of code to work across APIs.
1: Is there implementations of, I guess, abstractions to create hypermedia APIs across languages that aren't Ruby?
4: Yeah, so there's multiple standards, including JSON API, that do hypermedia stuff. So one of them that's very popular is called HAL, H-A-L. And one of the things that's nice about the media type approach is that it's inherently language agnostic. So JSON API says nothing specific about Ruby or even JavaScript. It's just HTTP. So we have internally a balanced, we actually have a full Python server-side framework for generating JSON API that we're hoping to open source in the near future that basically gives you the ability. So people have written client libraries in a bunch of different things. So, for example, we have Python, and Model Serializers is uh, mostly kind of supporting JSON API. It's a little out of sync at this point for Ruby, but we have this Python one. There's people that have written JavaScript ones. And for other hypermedia formats, there's tons of people that have implemented things in tons of languages. A lot of people are actually in the .NET world, and so we see a lot of people coming from there, actually, which is weird as someone who's like steeped in the tradition of open source you know i don't really have a lot of connection to microsoft but a lot of them are super into the concept
0: is there like a awesome. client list on the json api website or something yeah so, there's all these different clients in different languages we keep a
4: list on there's like an examples page on jsonapi.org, and that shows um i think it's an on examples one yeah so it shows a list of client libraries and server-side libraries so yeah we have listed up here already like multiple JavaScript and iOS, consumer clients,
0: PHP, Node, Ruby, Python, you know, server-side stuff, so. Cool. So, sorry, maybe this is a deviation from where we want to go, but I wanted to ask about how hypermedia relates to real-time things. Is it just you, I mean, does it apply seamlessly? Can you can you apply all the same concepts? Do you have to change anything when you're working with real-time data? Is it just your resources now, like, a pipe that gives you more data, or, or how does that work together?
4: I'm slowly learning that I'm an old man, and so real-time <laughs> real, real is one of those things that makes me like bust out my old manness. And so who knows how you're even defining real-time exactly, but most of the... So, so the hypermedia style is specific to client-server interactions. So if you're holding a long, open pipe to your server and you're expecting bidirectional communication... That is a totally different architectural style. And it is also totally valid. I'm not saying that it's bad, but it's definitely at odds with the like principles of building things this way. Essentially that's not nearly as scalable as the argument. So by keeping with client server style architecture, you can scale for a lot less than long running open connections, basically, is the idea. You know, do you want to into talk- the of that is like probably off topic, but generally speaking, yes, once you're talking about bidirectional pipes you're no longer in hypermedia lands. which doesn't mean it's not theoretically useful, but nobody has yeah. done any work in that area.
0: I sure. And I guess some of the principles still apply. Like, you could make the data you're pushing down have hypermedia links inside of it. Yeah, exactly, totally. Right? But, right. Okay, cool. Merrick, were you going to say something?
1: I was just going to ask a little bit about what is it that makes this model of writing APIs, namely statelessness, more scalable than something that's long-persistent. But then Steve made the point that maybe that's a little bit off-topic. So, Yeah, I mean, basically the TLDR is when you're stateless, you
4: can horizontally scale trivially by adding in new nodes. And when you're stateful, then you have to keep track of which connections are going to which server. So that, that inherently means you're keeping track of more stuff, which means you're slower, basically. Not to mention just generally the resources, right? So if you open and close... And this might have changed as, as, you know, technology changes or whatever, but basically, like, you can handle, if you only have, let's say, 5,000 open ports or whatever, if you open 5,001 long connections, you're screwed. But if you're opening 10,000 short-lived ones, that will spaces in between, right? So there's all all sorts of that kind of crap, too. But that is off-topic and sort of too low-level and too empirical. Like, you should test whatever works for you and, like, yada, yada.
2: So I kind of want to come back around to REST, and hypermedia APIs. It seems like everybody's got a different definition for REST and it seems like people who talk about hypermedia APIs really have kind of a focused answer. What, right. what are, what are some of the differences though between, I guess, the more traditional REST or Rails REST as opposed to correctly built hypermedia APIs?
4: Sure. So Rails REST basically just made all their stuff up which is like fine. That's how everything gets (laughs) happened, right? You just make stuff up, and it works. But there's basically no real connection between the two in any sort of like significant way. I would say that the closest thing that they share is that both agree that following the HTTP spec as closely as possible is a good idea. But most of the core things you think of for Rails REST are totally irrelevant from the hypermedia perspective. So, for example, pretty URLs are totally non-existent and not a concept in REST. People use the word resource wrong, so they would say that like slash person slash one slash people and slash people slash new are three URLs to one resource. In the RESTful terminology, those are three separate resources. Let's see what else. Get put, post and delete are crud is like not true and not relevant at all to like REST. They are that. They are also other things as well. And also they got put wrong. And stuff like that. So that doesn't mean that Rails Rest is not useful or good. I mean it is way better than things we'd used previously and I am never totally sad to work with a Rails Rest API. The one of the things about these kind of discussions is that people really want there to be one answer and like we're engineers, so there isn't. So, you know, while I advocate a particular style to be useful most of the time, it doesn't mean that I like think you're a terrible person if you're not building APIs this way, you know, in the moments right now or anything.
2: But yeah. So what are kind of the core tenets then of hypermedia APIs?
4: There are seven sort of like architectural principles. Tation, of course, um, because that's where everybody sort of like derives their you know understanding of this from. So I should also say this, too. So the REST theory, what happened, the history of this is that the web was incredibly successful. And that was sort of an accident, right? Tim Berners-Lee had no idea that this would be particularly, like, a great thing. And so what Roy Fielding sought to do with his dissertation was to take what had already existed and document why it was successful. That's actually the lineage of REST, is the story of how the web works. So when people say, there's actually nothing that gets me more annoyed than people that comment on various websites and say, like, REST is totally impossible and could never actually work, or, like, Hypermedia is totally impossible and never actually work, when they're using the very thing that proves them wrong to make that point. So, like, the web is restful, generally speaking. There's one or two small exceptions, but anyway, so the sort of big points are client server. So, as I mentioned earlier, you always have servers, and you always have clients, clients interact, like, start the interaction between clients and servers. It is stateless, so the server can, you know, take a thing from any clients. And statelessness is about the communication, not that your application can't have state. But that the, like, when you're sending the message, everything that's necessary to understand the request should be included along with the request itself. The ability to cache things is the, like, next one. So you have to be able to transparently put in caches in these places. The uniform interface, which basically is a fancy word for saying that we all use the same HTTP verbs, even though we have different services, right? So we all use get, post, put, and delete, even though that says nothing about our domain. They're sort of domain agnostic verbs. The last one is that it's layered. So for example, you can put a load balancer in front of a bunch of web servers and your browser doesn't care about that at all. It just cares that it like works. You can put a cache in front of a server that needs caching that's totally fine. So they got these layers built up. The last one is funny because it's an optional requirement, which is a really silly thing when you first think about it, but is like, you know, kind of makes sense. And that's called code on demand. And this basically means JavaScript. So you're allowed to write turn complete code in your clients that do alternate things. So those are sort of the big picture points of what actual rest actually means. And it's very much like an information architecture kind of concept. It's not like a lowly programmer building a thing kind of concept. It's like something that you extrapolate from to build your system. It's not like a checkbox checklist of things necessarily that you have to implement
1: mm-hmm. per spec. So that's the summary. So one of the big questions I have with these you know there's this huge move towards thick clients where you know to render a page you're making these massive API calls. Sure. Or a huge number of API calls. And I've seen like Different people are solving this in different ways. A lot of people mm-hmm. are using that request batching concept where sure. where uh, you can describe HTTP requests essentially within a single request, but right. then you kind of forego caching. And so I'm wondering what, you know, if Hypermedia resolves this problem at all, or if, you know, Hypermedia ADI spec resolves this problem at all, or what your personal recommendation for this problem is.
4: So, this is one of the bigger failures of Rails REST thinking, basically. So, one of the problems with with the railsy rest solution is that you think that you need to have a discrete call for every individual action like you think about calls as like function calls on a ruby object right so oh of course i need to call new first and then i need to call you know append and then i need to add these two things together so this had happened when i first came in at Balanced, for example where we have like a credit card number and then, so it makes a credit card object. And then you have a customer object, then you associate them. And so our intern who had like, was building out a prototype of how the new version of this worked, showed me what he was doing. And I was like, dude, why do you need three HTTP calls to make this happen? And he's like, well, you need one to create the card, one to create the customer, and then one to associate the two. And I was like, you have all the information up front. Why is it not one call to make a card and a customer? And he's like, oh, well, because that's not really like restful, Right. They're like, no, it absolutely is like a good according to the lines of HTTP that you can like make a resource that takes in the information for a card name and a customer and creates the card and customer entities on your system. That's totally fine. So I would say that it's not so much that Hypermedia solves this problem, it's just that like you don't tend to think about things as like, I need to batch up these 35 creates. You have some resource that does bulk resource creation and you like give them the information they need and it solves it. It's not like a It's not something you need to work around. That's a totally first class concept when you don't think about the way that Rails tries to make you think about it. You mean by creating a new endpoint? Yeah, so endpoint does not mean anything in REST. So I should, I should back up slightly. So this is one of the things that's like language confusing. So in the Rails world, you have resources, which are your like domain objects, and you have endpoints, which are the URLs that point to these objects. In the actual REST or hypermedia parlance, a resource is Anything that can be named. And the way you name things is URLs. So every URL is a distinct resource. So yes, you'd be creating a new resource slash like endpoints to make a new thing. But the difference is, is that resources don't have to map one to one to your business objects, which are called entities. So in Rails, we tend to have a one to one res, like not even resource. They tend to take the idea of an entity, call it a resource, and then say you can have multiple endpoints to the same entity, which is like conceptually very confused. So I would say that you would make a new resource that allows you to create multiple entities. Does that make sense?
1: So that makes sense, but then I run into the issue of composability. So now consumers of my API don't have the ability to compose things under an individual request. So they, I mean, they do if you build
4: in that endpoint. Like if you build in a new, another resource that allows you to compose two things, then sure, they can do that. There's nothing like bad about exposing multiple ways, right? Got it.
1: So exposing maybe a batching endpoint is not necessarily a bad idea if you need to enable client composability.
4: Yeah, there's nothing inherently wrong with doing that. It's not awkward or weird. It fits right in with a regular old concepts. Do you feel like most people think you're a heretic? I don't know if I'd say heretic. They definitely think that I'm nuts. (laughs) Uh, Do you feel like
5: John the Baptist out in the wilderness crying? Yeah.
4: Between all the random things that I tweet about, uh, between all the like weird, obscure French philosophy stuff and all the rest stuff and all the like social justice stuff, I'm pretty sure that 85% of my Twitter feed does not actually like, listen to anything that I say. But yes, no, definitely, <laughs> people definitely do think about that in the terms of they're like, cool, Steve, I'm glad that's working for you. Enjoy your weird corner in the woods where you mutter to yourself. Totally.
5: <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> Just as a guess, what percentage of developers out there do you think have the same paradigm of rest that you do? Percentage probably like zero. <laughs> I have I have I probably met a
4: hundred people total. This is incidentally why Fielding refused to st- like stop answering questions about this topic because like after you get the one billionth email, you're just like, please just go read the thesis and it just tells you. Like this is actually how I learned this. So the way that I learned this was some random person said Rails doesn't actually do REST and I was like that person is smart, but they said something that sounds stupid. I should maybe, like, think about why I feel that's true and maybe go look into what their argument is. And then I was, like, reading, and I was like, okay, where is REST actually defined? And people were like, you know, oh, it's in this dissertation. And so I read it, and I was like, what the hell did I just read, first of all? And then secondly, like, yeah, this has nothing to do with what Rails is talking about, like, what is going on, and just, like, actually studied it, right? So... So I would say that not a whole lot of people, although it is kind of changing, um, due to my like, multi-year campaign, at least in the Ruby world, people are starting to kind of get an idea of what's going on. And now they're at the point where they, like, instead of not understanding anything that I'm saying and calling me crazy, they, like, understand half of it and call me crazy. So that's progress.
5: So it seems to me that, like, in the early days, before REST even became a thing that people talked about, there was this concept that endpoints, when we started doing actual, real endpoints, the endpoints were just whatever. Right? I Right. Okay. created endpoints. Then REST came out, and then everybody, except for the guy who invented REST, did it wrong, apparently. Yes. And, <laughs> and according to everybody else, that same thing is true from their perspective. Everybody else is doing it wrong but me, right? Right. And so then it became this very small, we're only doing these endpoints that do one little tiny thing. If you want to do anything complex, you have to call 35 endpoints in a row, right? So what you're talking about is the paradigm for REST. How is that different from the original when we just didn't even... Think of REST and we just built endpoints willy-nilly.
4: So, I mean, the difference there is that in actual REST, so the uniform interface constraint has four sub-constraints, and one of those sub-constraints is hypermedia as the... Hypermedia is the engine of application state. And so if you're not doing links between your resources, you're failing on that sub-constraint, and then four failing on the constraint, and therefore you are different
5: than REST. Can you explain that for those of us who are not following you? Sure. So
4: applications work like state machines. We have certain, like there's certain data, we do operations to them, it transforms the data, we get new data, right? And this can be modeled as state machines. Like all of the, state machine is like one of the most useful concepts in computer science. And we don't tend to think about our applications as state machines, but they basically are. So you can also represent state machines in hypermedia very easily because each response is a state and each link to the to something else is an edge that points out to another, you know, state. So, I guess I should say nodes and edges. So, each response is a node and then every link is an edge. So, when you think about your application like this, if you had a state machine with no edges, it wouldn't really be a state machine. You would just be you would have no idea what to do, right? You'd have all these discombobulated states and you wouldn't be able to figure out how they work. So, The hadios or the hypermedia constraint, because hadios is a terrible term, basically says that you need to directly expose those transitions in your API itself. And that way you can know what you can actually do with the application just by looking at it, right? So if you're in a state machine, you can see I have this exit and this exit and this exit from this node, and then you follow one, and now you're at a new node, and you follow along. And so your position in that state machine is like where you're at in whatever business process you're on. So, for example, let's say that I want to order some pizza online from some sort of, you know, online pizza seller place, right? So I go to their homepage, and because that's the entry point to their service. And on their homepage, it has a link that says, you know, what kind of food do you want? Pizza, sushi, whatever. And so I click on pizza... That now takes me to their, like, pizza ordering page, right? So I've progressed my business process in the application by changing some state about, like, what it is I'm doing. And then there's an order form that shows me, like, I can get a pepperoni pizza or a salami pizza or a veggie pizza. And So I say, like, I want three of each, and I click order. And that is also, like, order is also a link that takes me to the confirmation page that I've, like, caused some sort of state change to happen I'm, like, moving through the process. At any point in time, I could have taken a different option, right? I could have quit... I could have gone to help. I could have, like, chosen another store or whatever. And that's,
1: like, a state machine of me doing stuff. Can I just liken it maybe a little bit less abstract? Are you saying that the transitions to states that makes hypermedia different is those links? Yes. The fact, that it tells you, you know, this is the different states you can travel to from here. And Right. So remember our discussion about affordances,
4: right? So without any affordances, you wouldn't know what you could do in your environment and so the way that we do it now is we include no affordances in the responses we put them all in human written documentation that you have to like write up and figure out yourself whereas when they're actually in the response you can know what you're doing just by looking at the service it's self explanatory as opposed to needing a whole ton of like extra crap that is not parsable by computers
1: man that something about that just blew my mind right? uh, I, So I was like, just, it all the time. I was like what Yeah, it makes Makes sense. sense. I totally
5: dig what you're saying. One of the things that I'm not mapping that out to is how that is implemented or reflected in the API. Sure. So, for example, in JSON
4: API, we have a section that allows you to return the data. So one of the things I should also mention about JSON API is that it is pragmatic in the sense that I actually don't think it's a perfect hypermedia format, but I think that it's closer to my ideal format than what we currently have JSON API has some flaws in it that only I care about, and so I'm like willing to live with them in order to get more people using hypermedia stuff. So, with that little small caveat, JSON API includes a section for links, and those links have essentially a relation and then the actual URL result. And so, for example, I might have a new order relation, and so I know when I when I fetch like the home. I guess let's move it into actual like credit cards. This is what my actual real world deployment of this stuff is. So balance, we have this JSON API, you know, API. If you hit the root of our API with its credentials, it will essentially say, would you like to charge a credit card? Would you like to charge a bank account? Would you like to pay out a seller? You know, like all these different actions. And they all have names that go with the link. So I would say, cool, the charge a card link is the one that I want. So I click on charge a card and it would have the ability for me to fill in the card ID number or in this case a URL actually because we use URLs for IDs and then that would give me the cards representation. Now I'm on the card page and it would say there's a link that basically says charge this card and you fill it in with the amount and you submit it and then the card is charged. Whereas previously, like, if I would have needed to know, like, what all those URLs are separately and would need to code them in my client, instead it walks these steps to make that happen.
3: So, question. Somewhat tangential maybe, but when you refer to a URL or a link, There's two ways that I think of that. One is, well, I guess three ways, but it doesn't really seem to make sense to me to use relative URLs in an API. And there's absolute URLs where it begins with slash, or there's like a full URL that begins with HTTP colon slash slash. And to me, like I see on the jsonapi.org page, you have your link has the full HTTP everything. Right. But it seems like in an API it would make, more sense to just do it with a slash because then if you change the domain name or you're working on the test server or whatever you don't like it's still going to be valid like tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that
4: so there's a couple things first of all when i say link i mean rfc5988 my favorite rfc i think maybe I like to say that after everyone because it makes you think like people have actually like named them <laughs> or whatever. But it's called web linking and it actually defines what a link means. So there are a bunch of different kinds of links, and you're right. So links can be relative or absolute, right? So it's really up to you. Like there is no requirement in JSON API or in most hypermedia formats to use an absolute or relative URL. When half of your value proposition is you don't need to calculate URLs anymore, adding a relative URL means you still need to like tack it onto a base URL of some kind, right? So like one of the funny things about it is you're like if you use relative instead of absolute URLs, you're like, don't construct any URLs except put them onto the base. Like take the relative one we give you and put them on the base and make the request again, right? So people tend to consider that to still
3: be absolute if it begins with a slash.
4: Oh, that's not that's not how the terminology works. So an absolute URL is one that is the full qualified HTTP colon slash slash or whatever protocol, that's the word I'm looking for. Protocol, host name, and stuff.
3: that's, so that's what you're qualifying absolute URL as absolute URL with the base. Because like if I do a link in HTML, and I begin it with a slash, that's considered an absolute URL.
4: No. That's no? still a relative URL. It's relative to the root of the server you're looking at. Mm,
3: okay. So I guess
4: maybe technically, actually HTML might define it the other way. You actually might be Right. I'm not sure. Anyway, the point is there's a distinction we'll between including in the, the host name and not. Yeah, we'll find on the comments. Somebody will be like, oh, the guy who knows all the things doesn't actually know all the things. I haven't looked at the BNF for the URL RFC recently. That's a lot of TLAs.
5: Okay. <laughs> anyway,
4: so... Ooh. Anyway, the point is, is that you can include the host name or you cannot. Most people include it because that way you can just shove that value into your HTTP client and not worry about it at all. So, as far as you're like, so that I don't end up going to the wrong place. That's actually the strength of including the whole URL, not the weakness, because you as the server get to determine what your client sees. So if you want to temporarily redirect everyone to the correct server because you're going to, like, work on a new one, then you can actually use the whole full URL to point them at a totally different server or service, right? So you could actually say, like, I need to take these servers down. Please migrate to these other ones. Now, we tend to actually use load balancers and, like, pull machines out and get them in. So there's, you don't have to do it this way. But in a more primitive time, you can imagine a situation in which, you know, my service is running on api.balancepayments.com, and I temporarily spin up an api1.balancepayments.com, and I redirect people to use that, and then they use that, and then I work on the server, and then I redirect them back, and everything is, like, just fine. Right? I've seen that so, in a while.
1: What's so mind blowingly awesome about that is if clients aren't hard coding these actions, then it makes you know upgrading a particular endpoint significantly easier. Right. right? If you need a new charge endpoint, you just put in the response. Yep. And since one of the golden rules is basically clients don't
4: throw up on things they don't understand. They look for things they understand rather than looking for things they don't understand. So Then it works. So I'd make the analogy of like a bookshelf, right? If all of your books are in English, but one of your books is in Japanese and you don't speak Japanese, you don't go, well, I can't read this whole bookshelf. There's something I don't understand here, right? You pick out the pieces you know and you respond to those. And while another person with different capabilities might be able to read the Japanese book, you know, it doesn't wreck your day unless that's the book you wanted to read, of course. So it's the same way with these client libraries. If I introduce a new capability in my server side, then the client can just totally ignore it and it doesn't matter and people won't even ever even notice. So Right, yeah. it's,
1: just, it's just rad because it also gets rid of the documentation-growing stale problem. Yep. Hey, Jameson, did you have something to ask?
0: I did, yeah. So I wanted to ask about the role of HTTP verbs, especially how it relates to embedding URLs. Sure. So if, if some of the actions you can perform on resources involve right. posts or puts or whatever, you, you need to include things in the body. How do you embed that information in a URL? There's two ways to tackle this problem.
4: The first one is the put it in the link relation definition uh, version, which is the one that JSON API supports at the moment. So the idea is that you would say, for example, the when you see the charge a card relation, you must send a post request and only a post request to that endpoint. And that becomes part of the definition of understanding what charge a card means. And so therefore, it's encoded in the sense that you have that identifier, the part of the definition says it needs a specific one. That is an an option that lots of people take, including the aforementioned how. Other formats actually give you the ability to specify the verb in the body. So for example, in HTML, the form element gives you the option to put in get or post to determine what HTTP verb the form should send. So you can sort of pick one of the other, and formats choose which one they prefer based on what their author prefers, basically but they're essentially equivalent. So it doesn't really matter as long as you just like pick one or the other and do it.
2: I'm not sure I completely followed that. How do you actually know which verb to tell people to use? Have you ever used Adam before?
4: Like the RSS competitor, Atom, not the GitHub editor. So in Atom's specification, there's actually also a sister Atom Pub specification that talks about publishing Atom documents. And so it includes, for example, an edit link relation that says if you see edit and then a URL in an Atom document, then you need to send a put request to that URL and you can update the contents of what's in there. And that is part of the Atom spec that talks about how the edit relation works. So it says when you see edit, got to use put. And so that's sort of the, like, one option. The other one is the HTML option of including it in the actual body. So you can sort of specify it up front, or you can make it as part of the body. It doesn't matter.
0: So it seems like the first option, you're losing a lot of the benefits of having URLs in the first place because you take away, you need outside information that isn't contained in there because you need to have parsed, or understood the spec at some point to know what sure. to do when you see certain things, right?
4: So a sure. human, this is not... So in in some senses, yes, and some senses, no. So this is not necessarily a artificial intelligence can totally understand everything that you're doing style of API. A human still has to read, you know, like, if you're putting stuff in JSON, right, you need to read the JSON RFC or someone, a human had to read the JSON RFC and then build the code to make it work. So, Mm -hmm. it's not like we're going to have total 100% clients, you know, always figuring out what they do unless they're intelligent as humans are, which is why the web works, right? So the web allows you to like, do whatever you want, and things don't break because it's driven by humans. When you're talking about machine-to-machine interaction, a human had to have coded the machine at some point, and so somewhere, a human will have had to make the machine understand what that relation means, which is only through things. By creating the name, you allow the machine to pattern match. My understanding of this concept will be expressed
1: through this name. When I see this name, I can apply this code. So to... Try to make that more concrete. If your links come back and the key is edit, then I'm going to use, uh, you know, put. If it's right. the key is create, I'm going to use a post. If it's something I don't recognize, then it either needs to be documented or I'm going to call get on it. Right. Okay.
0: I was going to ask about, I mean, this might be getting too heavy into the details, but how sure. does that apply to specifying what the bodies look like in those requests? You can just punt on this if you don't want to get that low-level Yeah, bit.
4: I mean, really the thing is, is like, Designing a type is as much of an art as it is a science. So I would say that okay. that has a bunch of different solutions of which are all like roughly equally valid. And yeah, I think it's too much detail for this right now, but like okay. there are many ways that people do that. And you sort of just make up whatever you want. As long as other people think it's a good idea, they'll use it, right? One of the funny things about standards and standardization is that anyone can actually make a standards body or a standard, right? It's only if everyone else actually pays attention to you. So many people have made formats and they have not worked out. Many people have made formats and they worked. Like you know, it just depends. So
0: there's oh, a certain degree
4: of art.
1: Within this links, you know, definition, if there's a create and a URL, that doesn't include the taxonomy of what you need to send the object. And that's true. So that's something that you have to be aware of, right? Right. Whatever the taxonomy
4: is. And some actually do include that taxonomy in the response as well. So collection JSON is a type format that lets you like sort through lists and things, and it actually has a query object which gives you the full parameters you would need to pass in as query parameters to how that works. It's, it's very much like HTML forms, right? HTML forms include what you need to send in the body itself. So you can do that if you choose to.
1: Got it. So I'm going to change the topic a little bit. One of the big problems that I've experienced writing APIs, especially with mobile devices that consume the same APIs in terms of like downloadable apps, is versioning the APIs becomes very difficult and deprecating, you know, APIs is also becomes to be untractable. So I'm wondering what, you know, JSON API or hypermedia, I'm not sure which umbrella to ask about, but what I guess really what I'm asking is your personal opinion on how best to version APIs when you have to keep the old versions alive for download. Sure. This is my
4: really out-there-in-the-woods stuff, actually. I think that versioning is an anti-pattern, actually. And what's funny about this is people instantly freak out when I say that, because they assume all kinds yeah. of things about what I mean when I say that. So, I'm freaking out. Yeah. So the thing is this. Everyone says use the right tool for the job, and we need to manage change when it comes to our services, right? Like, nothing stays the same. Everything is mod- being changed all the time. So one tool to tackle the problem of change is versioning. And I don't think versioning is the worst thing in the world. I just think it's suboptimal. So, for example, at work, we do version our API. I don't think it's strictly necessary, but it is a pattern. So I personally prefer to put versions in the URL because essentially the thing we have to remember is when you create a... So to tease apart what change even means... To talk about this and why versioning is important, you to talk about change, right? So there's two kinds of change. There's more than two, but two that matter at the moment for this discussion. There's backwards compatible and backwards incompatible changes. There's also forwards compatible and forwards incompatible changes too. But there's these four separate types of change, and we automatically assume that we are talking about backwards incompatible changes all the time. So that's like the first problem with a versioning discussion is that versions really only matter when you want to make a backwards incompatible change. So especially if you're in this style of clients that are only listening to the things that they know and understand, you can introduce new capabilities. You can make forwards compatible and backwards compatible changes. I guess technically forwards incompatible ones too, whatever. So you can make backwards compatible changes by adding things and that will be totally fine. You don't need to rev your clients. Like everyone just listens and it works out. The question is what to do when you require a backwards incompatible change. So there's sort of two approaches to this. And I think that the problem with using versioning by default is that by using versioning, you tell yourself that it will be painless to make backwards incompatible changes, and therefore you make them too often and too much. So sometimes they are necessary, but not always. So for example, if you want to migrate, we had a situation where we needed to migrate people from a concept we used to call accounts, to a concept we called customers. And so we left the accounts endpoint still running and going while we created the accounts one and told them to move over for a very long time before we killed the old version, right? So we could have done that by saying, like, upgrade to the version 1.1 where the old one doesn't exist, or we could build the new one and the new version of whatever it is, tell people just to use the new one if the old one is deprecated, and then run analytics to see how many people and what people are actually using the old one. Especially when you're doing an API, you can check based on the key that's being sent over. So you can actually see, like, oh, here are the five people that are still using that old thing, and then you can talk to them about a migration strategy and then eventually move them off. And then once you're done, you can eliminate it once, once you know that no one is, like, relying on this functionality anymore. So that's what I would say is the responsible way to version your service is to, like... Not introduce new versioning, strive to be backwards incompatibility for like the end of time. Essentially as much as you possibly can while getting away with it. And if you absolutely must make a backwards incompatible change, instrument it, find out how important it is to your customers, and then, you know, work with them on some sort of timeline sunset thing. You don't need versions to do that. So that was a really long rant. I hope that's something. no, no, I, to some
1: degree. I think there's one area where it's a little bit convoluted for me, and that's like, say, I'm making cards not backwards incompatible to go get sure. the cards. Or, or it is backwards compatible, I mean. However, the charge has two versions. So now what happens is the mobile client asks for the same cards URL, and unfortunately that link points to the new charge, which sure. it needs the backwards. Because charge is backwards incompatible, it, right. it, it doesn't have the right action. Right. This is the problem with backwards
4: incompatible change, and that's why you should do it as infrequently as possible. Okay. So so basically, like, in my universe, you would not actually remove... So you would do them at the same time. You'd include the new data and the old data. You'd let old clients use the old stuff. You'd tell new people to use the new stuff. And then you would wait until you can upgrade all of those old people or enough of them that you're willing to cut them off, right? This is what we do with Internet Explorer 6, right? Like, we can't actually kill IE6, but at some point it becomes a small enough amount of our traffic that we say, like, them. Right, and we put up a banners that say like, "If you're on IE6, please upgrade because you're killing us, man," and like all that kind of stuff. Right, yeah, yeah.
1: it's um, very, it's very web. I mean, yes. this idea is pretty much, you know, think about how the web standards process works and emulate that in your APIs. Yes, because the web has
4: been the most successful, largest scale, distributed system that mankind has ever built. And so learning from its successes and failures is probably a good idea. Seems like a good idea at the time. Seems like a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Then, you know, like freaking
1: heartbleed happens and you just like cry for days. I've been following a lot of your stuff on Rust, and uh, I'm wondering if you plan on... I mean, Rust, obviously, right now it's not, you know, oriented around this problem set. But do you see yourself, you know, implementing... Media APIs, etc., with the Rust language. Maybe someday. Basically,
4: yeah, we'll see. I mean, SSL support landed on master of the Rust HTTP project like last week, so it's still early days. And now, you know, of course, probably should be like fixed to actually verify these kind of connections uh, or whatever. Given uh, hardly even. Um, but it. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, hopefully someday I believe that we can write server-side things in Rust. We'll see how it goes. I have this feeling that Rust is more expressive than low-level systems languages have been in the past, and therefore it will allow us to do this. Like, I would never want to write a web service in C++, right? Like, that would be terrible and terrifying. But I think that Rust has enough high-level goodies that it might be tolerable to write web services in. We'll see how that happens as things go on. You know, I don't know, but I think that it will be.
1: We'll see. Sure, sure.
2: All right. Well, definitely an engaging discussion. Is there anything else that we should know about hypermedia APIs or any other questions you guys want to ask?
0: I have Um, lots of unknown unknowns still.
4: Yeah, it happens. I mean, one of the funny things, right, (laughs) that you don't learn about, unless you type time to study things, you don't learn them the whole way through, right? So, like, the only reason that I'm Mr. Crazy Off in the Woods is because I spent, like, a year of my life studying this stuff. So it's totally natural. It's hard to bridge the gap. Fielding literally wrote a blog post about jargon and its ability to include or not include people based on what their training is, which is really interesting. I can like give you a link to it or whatever, but yeah, I mean it's you know it's it's complicated, it's new, and it's different and it's weird. So do? I
1: I have one final question, then. and that's that you have a more intimate understanding of just this concept of you know, REST and, and writing APIs and this kind of stuff, it's, it's obvious and apparent that you've thought a lot about it. And I'm wondering what kind of resources and things can people leverage to develop that kind of understanding themselves? Totally. So, I mean, I always like primary
4: sources, so go read Fielding's thesis and then be confused and then read it a couple more times. There's a REST discuss mailing list that's pretty decent, and there's also uh, my hypermedia at liberalist.com, where that's the list for the book. But I let anybody join it or whatever and ask questions about this stuff. So you can like talk to people um, that way. There's also a pretty decent pound rest on free node as well that people are in and actively helping stuff. There's a couple really good books by O'Reilly. One of them is building APIs, building APIs with HTML5 and node, which is buzzword driven so they can sell books, but it's actually <laughs> nothing to do with node whatsoever. <laughs> It's like, he says right in the beginning, like, I'm using Node because every web developer knows JavaScript, but this is not really a Node book. And then the last one is the next book by the author, which is RESTful Web APIs, which just came out a couple months ago, which is also super good in terms of explaining how a lot of this stuff works. And of, of course, my book previously mentioned is okay for now. I will be improving it more
2: shortly, hopefully. Yeah, I get emails from you periodically saying, I'm working on it. Yeah,
4: the problem is, is that I took on too two... Ma- so... This has been, I'm working on Rails 4 in action now, and I told them last January that it would take me till April, and here we are a year and three months later, and I'm not done yet. So I've been trying to put all my effort into finishing that off. I thought it would be a short project, so I took it on even though I was already writing a book, and that was stupid. So what are you going to do? The last thing I guess I should say before I go is we're hoping to have JSON API, like, Finalized. So the spec still says draft on it, but since we have it in production now in multiple places, we don't plan on anything being backwards incompatible. But we're sort of cleaning up the last couple bits of details for a like initial release of the spec, and that will be uh, happening very soon, hopefully. So,
2: cool. Well, thanks for coming on and straightening us out. Yeah, thanks Uh, for having me. We'll go ahead and do the picks now. AJ, do you want to start us off with picks?
3: I'll start you off with a pick, Chuck. So I might have picked this one before. Not sure, but there is a chip tune called Micro Boogie that is absolutely beautiful to listen to. So I just love chip tunes. I've said that a bunch of times, and I've actually started playing this at weddings and other types of dances when I'm DJing. And, of course, nobody knows it, but it's just got this kind of fun beat, and people will do stuff. They'll do the train, or they'll just, like, throw their hands around and be goofy or whatever. And so... It's awesome, and it makes me happy. And let's see, other picks. Mm, I'm going to pick Virginia because I'm here, and it's warm, and it's humid, and that's nice. And I'm going to also pick East Coast time because that's what everybody should really be using anyway, and it's two hours later.
0: Okay. Jameson, what are your picks? So I have two picks. The first one is a video that actually one of my coworkers did. She did an awesome degree in fine arts but it was a lot of like abstract music visualization stuff and she created a, a little synthesizer that is controlled by moving browser windows around so when the browser windows hit the bottom of the screen they'll play a sound and then bounce back up or, or they can like bounce left and right and stuff so it's pretty sweet i just linked the video of it and then the next one is actually totally unrelated i didn't even know steve worked at balanced but i just listened to a podcast talking about balance some of the cool engineering stuff they do there it's a thought bot podcast i think it was an interview with the cto so yeah, M- yeah, M- 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 CTO, yeah. yes yeah it was super cool it sounds like they do lots of really cool things to like between open sourcing all the technology and even lots of like the revenue numbers and things like that so there's some cool stuff those are my picks
5: all right joe what are your picks So my first pick is going to be the Sphero Ball. After last week's episode on robots, I got impressed and went and plunked down the money and bought a Sphero Ball. And I'm playing with it with my son, and I've just had an absolute blast with it. It's completely awesome. So that'll be my first pick, is Sphero. My second pick is a little thing that I heard about called Habit RPG, which is a website that lets you gamify your life. So you can put in things that you feel like are positive for you, whether that's things that you do on habits or by habit or things that you do on a daily basis or to do's you need to get done. And then also things that are negative for you in your life and you put them in there. And then whenever you go in and say that I did this or didn't do this or I did this negative thing, it will basically give your character experience and life and let you level up and gives you that instant feedback that you get from, you know, gamification what keeps people playing World of Warcraft for way too long. <laughs> I like the way you said that. Yeah, it's like World of rake the leaves in my yard now. Exactly, exactly. But it's, you know, it's actually a really cool interface and I like the implementation quite a bit so far from what I've seen. Now my third and final pick is going to be a board game called Rampage. I played this a couple days ago with my family. And it's a board game where you set up all these little buildings and then each person controls basically a Godzilla character. But it's a like a reflex based game where you, in order to move, you have a little disc and you have to flick it around on the board. And wherever it goes is where you moved. Your whole goal is to eat the people. So when you want to attack a building, you pick up your monster if he's close enough to the building and you need to drop it physically on the building. And then if it scatters the little people close enough, then you eat them. And if it scatters them next to somebody else's monster, then they eat them. And it's just a super, super fun board game. really had a blast playing it with my family. My nine-year-old boy loved it and my 16-year-old daughter loved it. So that's my third and final pick is
1: Rampage. Awesome. Merrick, what are your picks? So I also have three picks. My first pick is the Extensible Web Summit that happened Ooh. last week. It was just it was the best tech event I've been to so far in my life and, uh, I just felt insanely privileged to be there. And the meeting minutes and all that stuff, it was very forward thinking, and people were thinking about the problems themselves and not the buzzwords. And there was something just so refreshing about about that conference. I'm still bummed there was no like there was no publicity whatsoever. I put it on my calendar and then never heard anything again. I'm subscribed to the
4: tag list and there was nothing. Yeah. Well you know,
1: I I live here in Utah and I, I emailed the organizer and I'm like, hey, is this like a meetup? Like, is it worth me, like, flying out there and getting a hotel, et cetera? Like, because of what you said, it was just, like, a Eventbrite page. But, man, it was awesome. It was so good. The next pick I have is the Pebble Steel. I waited three months to get it, but it's actually been a pretty cool product. Uh, it's just a little, you know, watch that corresponds with your mobile devices. And my last pick is the Philips Hue Lights in common – I mean, I'm, like, so scared to use the word restful around (laughs) Steve now. But the Philips Hue lights work over this HTTP thing where you send it verbs to URLs and you can change uh, the lighting environments. I don't know if it's rest per se, but the Philips Hue lights are awesome and the Node Hue API project is just an excellent wrapper for the project. So I've been having a ton of fun programming those lights to respond to different events and stuff like that. So those are my three picks.
2: All right. I'll jump in next with my picks. The first one, there's a utility that I found that you can run against your site to see if it's vulnerable to the heart bleed thing. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I'm going to pick something else. I may have picked it on the show before, but the client that I've been working for, they're using a a system called FlowDoc for their uh, group chat. And it's it's really slick. So anyway, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Steve, what are your picks? I got three quick
4: picks. First one is called Monument Valley. And I saw this game and bought this game because thought leader Tom Dale told me to. So I will say the same thing he said, which is it is a beautiful work of art that happens to be a game for your iPhone. The idea is that you have this really gorgeous screens that are sort of like Escher paintings where you can twist little bits of them. And then if they align visually, they also align. So like, There's two totally separate things, and then you twist them so they touch, and now your character can walk across them, even though spatially that like makes no sense. So it is super gorgeous and wonderful and amazing. My second pick is the book that I'm reading right now, which probably no one will care about, but I think it's fun to talk about anyway, which is a book called Parables for the Virtual. And it is Brian Masumi's exploration of what affect theory means for the contemporary blah, blah, blah moments. If you like random, like, French dudes that people get annoyed about reading, he describes this language in this book as a black hole, and I think it's pretty appropriate. It's super hard to read, but it's super great, and I've already found it to be amazing and fulfilling. The last one, which is one that people probably will care about, is the freaking Netrunner card game. Android Netrunner is a living card game by Fantasy Flight, which is my favorite American board game manufacturer, and it's super fantastic. So, It is a card game that was originally created by the same guy who made Magic the Gathering shortly after it came out. But then all the other card games and Magic went bust, and Fantasy Flight has purchased the rights to it and now releases it under... It's much more like a World of Warcraft subscription than it is a Magic card game. So every month a new expansion comes out, and you just spend 15 bucks and you get all of the cards. None of this like opening random packs and trading with people for rare or expensive cards. Just like 15 bucks a month and you're current and own the full set of everything. So that's super neat and awesome. And it's a great game too, separate of the like economics and all the other things around it. You play hackers versus evil corporations and as the corporation you need to advance your shadowy agendas and the hacker needs to like break into your servers and steal your agendas. So it's super, super awesome. Any programmer should be totally obsessed with it. So that's it. Those are my three. Sounds like fun.
2: People want to keep up with you, find out what you're up to. What's the best way to do that? Unfortunately, follow me on Twitter is the best
4: way to pay attention to what I'm doing. (laughs) I tweet a lot, probably too much. So I apologize in advance if any of you do decide to follow me on Twitter. But that is definitely, it's like a direct brain to tweet link. There's no filter whatsoever. So um,
5: I would like to say, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who's tweeted as much as you have 87,000 tweets.
4: I think I tweeted more than every word actually, which is <laughs> recent. <laughs> yeah. So it happens. But yeah, Twitter is definitely the place or you can email me at steve at but I'm terrible at emails. So it'll probably
2: take a while to get back to you. All right, well, we'll wrap up the show. We'll talk to you all later. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the blue box group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.